me with her fantastic writing on her books of um, Chronicles of Ancient Darkness and I'm sure you're really eagerly looking forward to what she's got to say this afternoon. So can you please welcome Michelle Paver. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that uh, rather appalling bleep there. I should avoid the speakers. Um, in the next 20, 25 minutes, I'm going to tell you a bit about how I came to write these books. And that involved meeting some wolves, of course. Um, and it involved trying to live like Torek and the people in the Stone Age, eating kind of weird Stone Age food. And it also involved a very frightening encounter with a bear. Um, and after that, I'll read you a little bit from the newest book, Outcast. Um, and then there'll be loads of time for you to ask questions. And please feel free to ask any questions you like about the books, or if you're keen on writing, now's your chance. Um, as you can see, I've brought a few bits and pieces from my research travels. If I forget to mention any of them, which I'm sure I will, do remind me when we get to questions. Uh, but first of all, can I just have a quick hands up? Anyone here who's read one or other of the books? Oh, brilliant. <laughs> what a surprise. Um, well, that's great. Just for, I won't spend too much time then on um, telling you the story, but just for any parents maybe who, who don't know what these books are about, they're set 6,000 years ago in the time of the hunter-gatherers, after the Ice Age, before farming came to northern Europe. The hero is a boy called Torak, uh, and he's made friends with a girl called Wren from the Raven Clan and with a wolf called Wolf. Um, that's all I'm going to say about the books. How did I come to write them? I never planned to be writing a series of six books set in the Stone Age. Um, but now that I am, I realise it goes back to when I was younger than most of you. When I was ten, I was passionately keen on two things. I loved wolves and I loved the Stone Age. I wanted to live like the hunter-gatherers. So I tried it. Uh, I lived in South London, in Wimbledon, so it was a little <laughs> bit tricky, uh, but I did my best. I thought, well, Stone Age people didn't sleep on beds, so I got my, got my father to take the bed away from my bedroom, and I slept on the floor. I wanted to make Stone Age medicine, so when my father was away, on a business trip, I dug up the lawn and I planted all sorts of weird herbs, which I'd looked up in a, a book. And then I brewed up these medicines um, and I tried them out on my little sister. Uh, I also made some nettle soup, stinging nettle soup. And if anybody has tried that, it's the greenest stuff you can ever make. And it splattered all over my mother's kitchen. Um, what I really wanted to do was make clothes out of animal hide, like the Stone Age people. So I ordered a rabbit from the butchers, a, a dead rabbit, um, and I paid for it with my pocket money. And I took it back to the garage and I skinned it. Hands up here, anyone who skinned an animal? Ah, quite a lot. What have you skinned? You've skinned a rabbit? Any advance on rabbit? Right at the back there, you'll have to shout. A mole. I don't think you've ever had a mole before. Interesting. <laughs> Rabbit, mole, anything else? Anyone want to yell out another animal that they've skinned? Okay, well, we've got rabbit and mole. 
for those of you who haven't skinned an animal, it's, it's not that disgusting. I, I was interested. It, it was like peeling a vegetable. You know, I slit it, and then it just sort of peeled off really neatly. But, of course, it was about that big, so I couldn't actually make clothes out of it. Uh, I rubbed it with salt and washed it so it didn't go bad, and then I slept on it. Of course, what I really wanted was a wolf. Uh, and I said, Mommy, Mommy, please, can I have a wolf? And she, they'd been brilliant up to that point, my parents, they really had, but they said no, uh, and they gave me a spaniel instead. But he became a wolf in my imagination when I took him for walks. And then I grew up, and I made a bit of a mistake. I became a lawyer. Uh, apologies to anyone who's a lawyer, but it was a mistake for me. Um, and I would have forgotten, I think, about wolves and the Stone Age forever if I hadn't met the bear. Now, this was many years later. I was, I was in my late 30s on holiday in the forest in Southern California, walking on my own along a beautiful mountain stream. And suddenly, I saw two gorgeous, fluffy little bear cubs. And the next moment, I saw the mother bear. Very gorgeous, not quite so fluffy. And my heart started to beat because I knew this is the most dangerous combination of bears you can meet, a mother with two small cubs. Because if she thinks you're threatening her cubs, she might attack you. She hadn't seen me yet. My way home led past her down the mountain. And I knew I couldn't try to creep past her because she would smell me. They've got a great sense of smell. And then she might think I was sneaking up on her cubs. Now I knew, and here's a bit of advice for you if you're ever in bear country, you should make a noise, let the bears know you're coming. So I knew I had to let her know I was coming. And I'd been given this advice, I'd been told either whistle or sing. When you're very scared, you take things literally. And it flashed through my mind, I can't whistle, I've got to sing. So I started singing Danny Boy. <laughs> um, I, I'm not, not going to do it now because I can't sing. But I promise you, I started going dum-de-dum-de-dum, Danny boy, very shakily, because I was terrified. And she obviously hated my singing, uh, because she left the cubs on one side of the stream and came towards me to check me out. And she stopped in the middle of the stream, about where the front row is. So very, very close. Until then, that was the most scary thing that had ever happened to me, because... She was an agitated bear. She didn't like me being so close to her cubs. She was going up and down on her front paws. And I knew that all she had to do, because she was huge, was reach over and hit me once with her paw, and she would break my neck. So I was mortally afraid. Um, there's a bit in the beginning of Wolf Brother when Torak knows the bear, which has just killed, was about to kill his father, is around him <coughs> somewhere. I think I say, his mind went white. Well, that's what happened to me when I was facing the bear. I couldn't see anything, I couldn't hear anything for a couple of seconds. Of course, I'd stopped sing singing by then. Um, what could I do? I knew I, couldn't, I shouldn't run, because bears can run faster. I knew there was no point trying to climb a tree, because they've got claws. These, these are bear claws, this is a bear tooth and they can climb much better. Anybody might tell you, oh, well, you know, grizzly bears can't climb trees. That's, they don't usually climb trees. They tend to just knock them over if they want to get at someone, so don't rely on that. 
I started talking to her, just trying to calm her down. Complete nonsense, um, but just trying to calm her down. And I started walking slowly sideways. I didn't want to show her my back. Uh, I didn't want her to think I was running. And gradually, the, if you imagine the bears still in the middle of the stream, and I'm walking down the mountain, and eventually when I knew that she couldn't see me, assuming she had stayed where she was, I ran all the way down the mountain. And I only stopped running when I got to the bottom and I met two hikers coming the other way, two men, heading towards the bear. So I, I warned them. I said, you know, you really should turn back. She's agitated, she's got cubs. And I think they didn't want to look scared in front of a woman, so they said, no, no, we're not scared, we're going to go on up. And that's when I relaxed, because I thought if she eats anybody, it's going to be them and not me. <laughs> so that was actually the scariest, very much the scariest encounter until that moment that I'd had. But it was afterwards, it was exhilarating, because I had felt very strongly that I'd been back in time. I, I could have been, from Torax time, a hunter-gatherer except probably I would have known better how to deal with bears. So that stuck in my mind. And a, a few years later, I'd, I'd stopped being a lawyer, and I'd become a writer. And I was looking at an old story I'd tried to write about a boy and a wolf. And suddenly, I remembered how I'd felt with that bear. And I thought, I'll set it in the Stone Age. And that was the the sort of lightning moment when I realized that everything I had absolutely loved as a child I would get to use. So that was great. And then very quickly I realized that it's not just one book, it's more books. And it actually only took a week to work out the whole series of six books in broad terms, the outline. So now I had to make the story real. Because what I want to do with these books is to take you back and make you feel you're in the story, having the adventure with Torak and Ren and Wolf. Well, what was it like for them in the Stone Age? Well, of course, I couldn't go back and interview Stone Age people, but I could go to the old forest. For Wolf Brother, I went up to Finland um, and slept on reindeer skins and talked to Sami, people who live with, with reindeer. Um, for Spirit Walker, I went to North Norway and then Greenland to study the Inuit, we used to call them Eskimos. I also swam with wild killer whales because I knew Torak was going to get close to them. For Soul Eater, which is cold, the, the, the far north, I went back to Greenland in the winter, tried some husky sledding, Greenland style, which is a little bit more chaotic than the sort of Alaskan style. Um, Outcast will come to a little bit later. The thing that struck me right away with, with Torax people is that they know their forest incredibly well. They know their world. Um, because, of course, everything they need for survival is around them, but they've got to find it. Um, so when Torak comes across, <coughs> as I did, a piece of reindeer antler, I found this in Greenland. Of course, I had to get someone to saw a bit off to, to put it in my suitcase. When he finds this, he'll think, oh, good. Um, I can use this for arrowheads, harpoons, toggles for fastening clothes, knives. Um, but he wouldn't just stumble across it the way I did. Um, he would know where the, the reindeer are going to migrate and when they're going to be in his part of the forest. He knows it. Um, if he wants to make himself a, a drinking cup, he'll know when to strip the birch tree of its bark. This is a little cup made out of birch bark, uh, made by the Dene people in, in Canada. 
and it's I've got a bigger one at home, but it would get squished if I brought it along. And it's incredibly light, uh, but it's quite tough. And it's sewn with spruce root. And you know, Torak could just attach it to his, his belt. <coughs> Probably last a moon or so, and then he can make another one. But he needs to know where the birch trees are going to be. The other thing I discovered the hard way was when they made things, I think they worked. Because you don't get too many chances in the forest. Um, I had an utterly miserable day of research up in northern Lapland. Um, it was for Wolf Brother. It was very cold. I was on horseback, and stupidly, I was wearing the wrong clothes. So my, my gloves and my boots were letting in the sleet. Hands up here, anyone who's ever had really cold hands. We're in Scotland, <laughs> I should think most of you. Yeah. Um, well, my hands were so cold, I could hardly hold the reins. And I remember thinking very vividly, if this was Torak this would kill me. Because if my hands are so cold that I can't build a fire, I'm dead. So I did some more research. And up in Greenland, the Inuit told me, well, we would use seal hide um, because it's waterproof and it's incredibly warm. And we've got a special waterproof stitch um, to keep the water out. So this is actually a seal hide from Greenland. It's a ringed seal. It, it may look a bit small, but it's actually an adult seal. And this seal was eaten. He died in a good cause because they, they kill them and they use all the bits. But you can see it's all silvery. Um, and I'll have this on the signing table when I'm signing, and you can touch it and see how it's quite oily, because, and that keeps the water out. And they also made clothes out of reindeer hide. Anyone who's read Soul Eater, these are Inuit mittens. They're exactly the sort of thing that Tarak and Ren wear um, in Soul Eater. They're incredibly warm. I'm going to start overheating if I wear them too long now. And they're beautifully made because the fur on the palms points upwards. And that means that if you're trying to grasp a frozen fish or something, it's not going to slither out of your hands. So they've, they've thought of everything. Food, Stone Age food. Um, in Spirit Walker, Torak sort of accidentally, but he has to do it, kills a boar, a great big wild boar. Um, and he's on a bound to use every part of it. Um, he can't just walk away from it, which is massively inconvenient in the plot and caused me a sort of double take because I realised, oh no, we can't slow down the plot for two weeks while he uses all the bits, which is why someone comes in and deals with it in the story. But that's the hunter-gatherer way. They, don't, they feel on a bound to honour the animal by um, saying thank you to its spirit for giving its body, and then they must use every part of the animal. Otherwise, maybe the prey won't come again. That's why I brought along a toy seal. It's actually an accurate representation of a baby harp seal, um, according to the Natural History Museum. When I was in Greenland, I got an Inuit hunter to show me what he would do with all the bits when he'd killed a seal. He had a dead seal um, that he'd killed. And obviously, the, the hide they use for clothes I've, and tents. I've slept in a seal hide tent. It's very warm, but noisy because it flaps in the wind. Um, the, the blubber, the fat. Um, you can burn or you can eat. I have to say raw seal blubber is not to my liking. I, I did try some and it's, yeah, yuck. Um, the meat's all right. Anyone suggest another body part and I'll tell you what they use it for. Yes. What about like the nose and eyes? The nose and eyes. Well, this, I don't think too many harp seals have a big black nose like this. Most seals have just flaps, nostrils that close down. So they would be part of the... Um, the, the pelt. The eyes, though, 
still today in parts of Greenland are a treat for the grannies uh, because their teeth have worn down, so they pop them in their, uh, their mouths whole and munch them up. And I, I couldn't bring myself to do that, but there we go. The bones, good one. The bones are, are split and used for needles traditionally and sometimes arrowheads and harpoons. Very, very useful, the bones. Yes. The liver, that's a nice one. When the animal's first killed, traditionally, uh, and the, the Inuit know exactly where to make a slit um, in the tummy, and then they pull out the liver while it's still warm, and then all the hunters eat a little bit of it, and that's keeping, uh, making them one with the animal's spirit. And I actually, because I knew Torek was going to do that in Soul Eater, so I did that. Um, and research is surprising because it wasn't actually disgusting. It was warm and bloody and quite sweet, and it just slipped down. So there we go. Right at the back, you'll have to shout. What are the brain? The brain is a nice one. Um, brains, whenever hunter-gatherers killed an animal, usually they would mash up the brains, and then when they'd skin the animal, they'd spread the, the brain on the the, the non-furry side of the skin to cure it, in other words, to preserve it, turn it into leather. Um, and so they, they would probably, unless they were starving, in which case they'd eat it, they would use the brain for that. And there's a rather nice American Indian saying that every animal, including every single one of you, has enough brain in its skull to cure its own hide. So if someone skinned you, that's what they could do. Last couple of ones. Kidney, they would eat the kidneys, because kidneys are rather nice to eat. They'd wash them out first, so they didn't taste a pea, and then they'd eat them, probably. Um, yes, last one. The whiskers, yeah, whiskers are a tricky one. There's not much you can do with seal whiskers, although some seals have very long whiskers. Um, paint brushes, I was told, just about, you know, I was getting a bit desperate, but there's not much else you can to do with them. Now, we could go on, um, and if you, if you want to ask me in questions afterwards, but you get the idea. And actually, at the end of all of this, when I've been taking notes, I, I asked the, the, the Inuit um, man, the hunter, well, which bits would you throw out? And he just looked blank and said, well, nothing. Because the bits that don't taste, taste nice, we, nice, we give to the husky dogs. So that's Torak and Wren. Um, when they made things, it worked. When they knew their forest, and they, they used every bit of the animal. Wolf, of course is a major character in the stories. Um, what about wolf? How did I get to know wolf? Um, I'd read a lot about wolf, wolves. I'd studied their behavior. I wanted to go and meet some wolves, though, because nothing like meeting them. And of course, they're extinct in England, but there are, you could still go and meet them in certain reserves where they keep them. There's one in Berkshire, and I went to it. And these are not tame wolves, I should say, because you cannot tame a wolf. Uh, but they're not completely wild because, you know, they'd run away, unfortunately. And so I'd like to just show you a little bit about how you might introduce yourself to such a wolf using proper wolf talk insofar as we know it. Torak, of course, knows more than I do. Um, can I have a volunteer to be a wolf? That was quick. Yes, you put your hand up. Do you want to come up? Now, you don't have to do much. Don't worry. You're not, I'm not going to make a fool of you. What's your name? Lucy. Lucy. Great. Now, if you stand facing me, great. Can everybody see her? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you kneel down, can everybody still see her? <coughs> no. no. Okay. Stand up then. Sorry, Lucy. Okay. You're not Lucy. You're a wolf. Okay. Now, all you need to do is respond to me as you think a wolf might. Um, she's looking mystified, but it's okay. That's fine. 
Now, the first step is just to let the animal, the wolf, get used to me. And she's looking quite relaxed. And that's the golden rule. You always watch the wolf because they give you very subtle signals and they're all different and they all have their own moods. She's looking quite relaxed, so I'll get a bit closer. Um, now, the other thing to do is levels. In a wolf pack, there are no equals. It sounds tough, but that's the way it is. You're either above someone or below someone. So what I'm not going to do is lean over her like that, because that's saying, I'm your leader. She thinks this is quite funny, um, so that's nice. But she might be the sort of wolf who'd be offended. Equally, I'm not going to go below her, because then she might think, well, I'm your leader. I'm going to boss you around. And then we have a fight, and I lose, because she's a wolf. Um, so I'm going to stay about her level. I'm not going to look into her eyes, because you see, she, looked, she didn't like that. She was all sort of disconcerted. It's a bit rude to look into their eyes. And it, you want to, because they've got golden eyes. They're beautiful. This ring is the color of wolf's eyes. It's amber. In this case, she's got blue eyes. Doesn't matter. Some wolves have blue eyes. I'm going to look and then away, just a grazing look. I'm going to talk softly. But I am going to talk, because they can pick up your mood from how you talk. Parts of the body never pat a wolf on the head. They don't like it. Um, they don't really like their paws being touched. She's got beautiful tattoos there, but they don't like their paws being touched unless you know them very well. Now, if we really, she's very relaxed. I'm going to scratch the fur under her front legs because they love that. Um, I was going to, the next stage is licking muzzles. Um, golden rule, always watching the wolf. She was looking distinctly uncomfortable there, so I'm going to back off. It's great when a wolf licks your muzzle, actually. Um, but she is looking a bit uncomfortable, so I'm going to release you, Lucy. You can go back. Can we just clap? Because, you know, how, how brave is that, you know, to volunteer? She didn't know what I was going to do with her. Um, but just to show you, that was on my first day of meeting a wolf. Um, what I've just done, it did actually work, because I felt relaxed meeting her. Um, and I think she picked that up, because I wasn't scared of her. She was then relaxed. Um, She's a lovely wolf called Dakota. She's not snarling. You can probably see that. She's yawning. Um, and that means that she was feeling relaxed, which I took as a huge compliment. Um, just as well, because those teeth are four times as strong as an Alsatian's. So she could have taken my wrist off very easily, but she didn't. Um, now, there are lots of wolves in Outcast in book four. Um, there's wolf, of course. There are also some wolf cubs. There's also the wolf clan, because for the first time, we actually meet um, Torak's clan, the wolf clan. It's not quite what he would expect, or maybe what you would expect. What else happens in Outcast? Well, Torak makes some other discoveries about himself. Uh, he also makes a pretty huge discovery about Wren, which I really hope you haven't guessed. And there's a big discovery that goes, has its roots right back in the first chapter of Wolf Brother. And I wonder if anyone would have spotted it. Why is it called Outcast? Well, some of you who've read Soul Eater, the, the book beforehand, may just have an inkling. Um, in Soul Eater, Torak got very close to his enemies, the Soul Eaters. And in Outcast, he has to pay the price for that. He's chucked out of the clans. He's on the run. He's on the run from everybody, including Finkeddin, including Wren. Um, 
and he ends up in a very scary place. He ends up in Lake Axehead, which is the huge inland sea between the forest and the mountains. And Lake Axehead is guarded by an enormous bed of enormous reeds, which is haunted by the hidden people. So be warned, I think it's quite scary. It <coughs> when I was writing it. When I was researching it, of course, I needed lakes, so I went up to Sweden. What better place to go and see lakes? They've got hundreds of, well, they've got several thousand lakes in Sweden. I found beaver workings, you know, where beavers have cut down the trees. I met a, an elk, a moose, who'd been abandoned by its mother, um, and that went into the story. I saw some rock carvings that had been carved by the, the people of Torek's time. I needed to meet some snakes. Hands up here, anyone who's either got snakes or met some. Wow, snakes, some snake lovers here. <laughs> Didn't expect quite so many. Great, well, thank you. I had never met snakes until then. I didn't think I was scared of them, and I'm happy to say I wasn't. Um, I, I didn't expect, though, to feel so overwhelmed when I, when I had a, a snake put into my arms. I mean, you know what it's like. You just sort of stand there and let them do their stuff all over you. I just thought they were the most incredible creatures. I needed to meet snakes because I needed to know what it's like to be a snake for Torak. Um, and these lidless eyes that just stare at you, they never blink, of course, and the little tongue flickering out. I felt huge respect, if not awe, for those snakes. Actually, the best bit of the research for Outcast um, was also the most unexpected. I think I've mentioned wolf cubs in the book. I, I knew from when I, the beginning of writing Wolf Brother, when I was planning the whole series, that in book four we would need wolf cubs. A little bit difficult to get, you know, to find them um, and do some research on them. And last year, um, I was so lucky, I was in the middle of writing Outcast and I got a message from the reserve, the UK Wolf Conservation Trust, where I met the wolves. And they said, it was a text message, and they said, we've got some cubs. And I thought, that's marvellous, because then I can do my research. And then the, the message went on, oh, and do you mind if we call one of them Torak? Of course I don't mind, it's fantastic. So actually, last summer, I spent quite a lot of time with wolf cubs. Um, if anyone's seen them, they are the cutest things ever. They're tiny, fluffy. Um, I bottle-fed Torak several times. Wolf cubs burp. Did you know that? <laughs> I was just about to ask the question of, of somebody, and Torak gave a loud burp. Um, he was so cute. They grow incredibly quickly. Um, it's amazing how, though, even from the start, the characters are apparent. Torak has two, two stepsisters, two little black cubs at that stage, um, with beautiful eyes like green amber, Mosey and Maya. Um, Mosey is friendly with anybody. Maya's a bit scared. Torak is pretty fearless, and he's turned out to be the leader of the little pack. Uh, he's not scared of anybody, but he doesn't want to be friends with everybody. So he's very choosy about his friends. I'm happy to say that he's friends with me, which is just as well, um, and he's one of my favourites. So I think now, just before we have questions, I'll read you a tiny bit from Outcast. Um, it's a bit where Torak's been on the run for a while, and he's trying to get it. He's not yet reached Lake Axehead, but he's following a river up towards it. And he's in particular trying to get away from an older boy, a boy called Aki from the Boar clan, who's, who's been hunting him relentlessly because he's got a particular grudge against him. But at the moment, Torak thinks he's, he's got away. 
From where Torek stood, the ground dropped steeply to the river. He'd passed the rapids some time ago, but their thunder still filled his ears. Below him, the river ran swift and deep. Should he stay this close or get under cover? He decided to stay close. Wrong choice. The boulders were treacherous with moss and he fell, bumping and rolling down the slope. He ended up sprawled on a rock by the water's edge. The trees grew sparsely here, and as he struggled to his feet, he got a clear view downstream and saw a dugout nosing round the bend. Aki saw him and yelled in triumph. Desperately, Torak looked about. No time to climb the slope. Up ahead, a rockfall blocked his way. He was trapped, and Aki had a quiverful of arrows. Torak threw off his gear and jumped in the river. The cold was a punch in the chest, and the current tugged off his boots and blinded him with his hair. Spluttering, he surfaced among willows. He clung to one. It didn't give much cover. He took a deep breath and pulled himself under. The river was murky, eager to carry him to Aki. His numb fingers lost their grip, and as the current spun him, he caught a flash of the log he was about to crash into. He tried to dive, couldn't get deep enough, took a blow on the temple. Kicking water, he burst free to a blaze of sunlight and a fishing spear aimed at his chest. It wasn't a log he'd crashed into, it was Aki's dugout. Frantically, Torak twisted round, then dived under the boat. He bobbed up on the other side. Aki was waiting. Again, the spear jabbed. Again, Torak dived beneath the boat. Once more, he surfaced, but this time, as Aki lunged, Torak grabbed the spear shaft and yanked with all his might. Aki howled and pitched over the side. Locked together, they fought, each battling to wrench the spear from the other. Aki jerked the shaft beneath Torak's chin and slammed him against the boat. Choking, Torak drove his knee into Aki's groin. Aki roared and let go of the spear. Torak rent for it, but, as, but the river carried it away. That lunge nearly cost him his life. As he reached for the spear, Aki seized his hair and pushed him under. Flailing, Torak clutched Aki's jerkin, leggings, anything. Couldn't catch hold of the slippery buckskin couldn't claw loose from the grip on his hair. His sight darkened, his mouth gaped to scream, and the river took the bubbles of his breath. I think we're going to have to leave Torak and Aki there. Sorry, always leave on a cliffhanger. Um, now it's your turn. You've listened very patiently. The temperature's risen. Um, I think there is a roving mic, which means that somebody's walking around with a mic... I was going to say a microscope, a microphone. Um, so if I point someone out, yes, the stripy cardigan, and then... What clan would you... What clan would I be in? Um, I do change from time to time, but I think, on balance, I would be in the Raven clan, uh, because I think they're nice and moderate. You know, they don't move around every single day, which is practically what the wolf clan does. They don't stay put forever, like the seal clan. They're not too religious, but they do the right thing. And I think Finkedin is an amazing leader. So um, I think probably the Raven clan. Um, now, somebody right at the back, yes. I'm going to try to cover you all. What would you do with stomach and the stomach acid? What would I, of the seal, what would I do with the stomach and the stomach acid? What would I personally do? <laughs> Chuck it away. Um, 
The stomach acid, I don't know of any known use that they have for it. Quite honestly, they would wash out the stomach contents. Well, if they were really hungry, they'd eat the stomach contents, acid and all, because if you're hungry and you're starving, you eat everything. The stomach itself, like many of the internal organs, like the bladder, for example, they would turn, they'd quite often turn into a pouch. So they would cure it in the same way as the hide to, to preserve it, and then it could be turned into a pouch. Um, if they don't need that, they would, bits like, for example, the lungs, um, and if they didn't need the stomach for a pouch, they would give it to the husky dogs. And if they were really starving, they'd eat. They'd eat it. Yes, down here. Wait for them, if you don't mind. Who's your favourite character? Who's my favourite character? Um, I don't really have a favourite. Uh, I mean, I like all three of them very, very much. I mean, Torak. You know, there's part of me in Torak, so, uh, you know, obviously I like him. Ren, I, I like tremendously. Um, if I had to, if I was, you know, up against the wall with a gun held to my head, I'd probably have to then choose a favourite. I'd say Wolf, um, because he's huge fun to write from his point of view. And he keeps surprising me. I mean, they all surprise me. But um, surprisingly, though, the baddies, when I'm writing about them, they are huge fun to write. They're not nice people, but I do enjoy writing them. And there's some strange ones in book four and even stranger in book five. Um, yes? When I travel a lot, what accent do I use when I talk to foreign people? I'm my own. <laughs> um, I don't know what this accent comes across as. Um, I mean, it's interesting. When you are travelling in, in remote places like Greenland, for example, um, how you behave is very, very important. Um, and I found this out when I came to a little settlement and I wanted to find out about seal hunting. And I wanted to eat some seal. And to begin with, I got this... You know, I said, I'm a writer, I want to, to find out about seal hunting. And I realised they thought I was, you know, a, a, a journalist or maybe from Greenpeace and I was against seal hunting and they didn't want to let me in. And then I showed them a copy of Wolf Brother and said, um, actually, I'm writing stories and I want to, you know, research it. And, and then, then they understood. So it's very, very important how you approach these things. But in terms of accent, I mean, I did try to learn a few words in Inuit. I can't remember thank you, but I do remember wolf, which is amarok, and seal, which is puisi, and polar bear, which is nanok, which is to be avoided. Yes? Um, what was the hardest character to write about? What was the hardest character to write about? Um, I think one, I mean, there, there, quite a few of them. When you're writing a character and sometimes they don't come into focus, it's like you're wearing the wrong glasses and you can't see them properly. The, the, the walker, um, the dirty, filthy old man in, in book one, um, and he comes into later books as well. To begin with, I couldn't really see him, and it was tremendously difficult. And then I suddenly remembered a, um, a homeless person I'd seen on the tube one night when I was coming home from work really, really late. And he was sitting, and he had great loops of snot sort of going from one chair to the next, which made a big impression on me. And then I realised that's what the walker's like. And then I could see him and smell him. Um, so he was very difficult. Um, the, the soul eaters were hard to begin with because it was quite scary describing them in soul eater for the first time when, you know, big build-up, three books, they better be good. Um, so that took a lot of work. Um, yes, yes, that one there, sorry, I'm just pointing. Um, you, in Outcast, when he's just reached Lake Axehead, he's walking around the North Shore and he walks into this net of 
guts and things. Mm -hmm. What is that? It's a net of guts and things. <laughs> yeah, why is there a net of guts and things there? Well, I don't want to give too much of the story away for, for those people who haven't read Outcast yet, but there is somebody, there's an intelligence who's trying to herd him in a certain direction um, in Outcast, isn't there? And she has set things up so that he, he, he basically has nowhere to go but where she wants him to go. Okay. I had another question, which was, what do you do with the, with the seal's teeth? The seal's teeth, yes, good one, because the pictures you see, they're always nice fluffy little seals with their mouth closed. They have fearsome teeth, because of course they're hunters. Um, quite often, what they would do is keep the teeth in the jaw and then use them as serrated knives for cutting hair and that sort of thing. Um, you could use them for clothing, uh, um, jewellery as well. Similarly, the claws. Um, I don't, I'm not wearing it now, but I have a lovely seal claw necklace. Um, so, yeah, good question. Now, right at the back, there are two, so we'll take one after the other, if you don't mind. I hope I'm trying to cover everybody, but... Uh, what happens to the baby L, the one that Torek punches on the nose? <laughs> well, again, these people have read Outcast. I don't know how you managed it. That's very good going. There is, it's a young elk. When we say a baby, there's, a, there's an incident with a baby elk or a young elk. This is a yearling who's been abandoned by its mother, some research I did in Sweden. Elks have a tough time because when they get to a year old, and by then they're the size of a small pony, so we're not talking too small. Their mother has a new calf and she basically just kicks out the older one. And literally, you know, you can see the scars and, and the bleeding sometimes and they don't know what on earth is going on. So they wander around the forest very lost. Um, well, what happens to that particular elk? We're never completely told, but later on in the book, we do hear an, a young elk bellowing across the lake. So if you want to, you can believe that he, ma he made it. He managed you know, to, to adjust to the fact that his mother didn't want him, as many of them do, and he made it. But you never, you know, the forest is a tough place. I'm not going to tie up all the loose ends. And next to you. Are you going to make a film about... Um Wolf Brother. Is, is, is it Wolf Brother going to be made into a... Well, I'm not going to make it because I haven't got $100 million, um, and that's probably what it would cost. Um, I've sold the rights to a big studio, Fox, and to um, a very good director-producer, Ridley Scott, and they're working on it. Um, I have, they haven't yet finally decided to make the film. That's called greenlighting it. Um, but I have seen a script recently, um, and I really liked it. I mean, it's a weird experience, I can tell you, reading a script written by someone else of characters that you're still working on. But I was so relieved. I really like it. And that's partly because it was written by a guy who um, knows his hunter-gatherers. He's a member, an honorary member of a Lakota Sioux tribe. So he knows what he's talking about. So fingers crossed. Um, if anything, if they do decide to make it, if they greenlight it, it will be announced on my website. Um, so we're hoping to hear at some stage. Um, yes, who hasn't had one? Yes. Um, why did you choose to call Torak Torak? Why did I choose to call Torak Torak? I had to make up all the names because we don't know a single Stone Age name. Um, the way I did it was I looked at sounds from old languages, from Old Norse, which is what the Vikings talked, from Anglo-Saxon, which is what used to be talked in, this, in, in England, um, from Inuit, and I tried to, to make a sound, a, a name that was easy to pronounce and strong sounding. And I thought I'd made it up. And then I went to uh, Greenland for the Spirit Walker research. 
and I showed, because I had to establish my credentials as a writer, I showed um, Wolf Brother to my Inuit guide, and she said, Torak, that means perfect in Greenlandic, in Inuit. And I thought, whoa, that's spooky. Uh, and she said, no, it's not. It just means you were an Inuit in a previous life. So once, many generations ago, you knew Inuit. So I did make them up. Um, Ren means reindeer in some languages. I didn't know that at the time, or I'd forgotten it, but I think it's quite apt. Finkedin is my personal favourite. I, I was really pleased when I got that name. Um, but Wolf was the most difficult. You know, <laughs> I, I had different names, um, about three days of stupid, stupid, embarrassingly stupid names. And then I thought, oh, he's a wolf. Call him Wolf. Yeah, names, very important. Yes. What would you do with a seal's heart? What would you do with a seal's heart? Nice one. Um, traditionally, and still in some parts of Greenland, they cut up the heart, and each member of the clan, the extended family, eats a little bit, usually raw because they don't have much fuel to cook it. Um, and that is a way of making you feel part of the family, like sharing a birthday cake or something. Um, I haven't eaten seal heart. I've eaten elk uh, and reindeer heart, and it's nice. Heart is nice. Um, but that's what they do with a seal heart. So, nice question. Uh, yes, now there's sort of in the middle, the long blonde, sorry, yes, in the middle, long blonde hair, well, fairish hair. What, what would they do with the seal's tongue? The seal's tongue, um, they would eat that, because tongues generally are quite oily um, and very nice. Does anyone here ever eat ox tongue? Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Um, so that's what they would tend to eat. To do, do with that. Um, and behind you, yes, the boy with the glasses. What do you imagine Torak would look like? What do I imagine Torak would look like? Well, um, we know from, I think, some of the books that he's got dark hair. It's quite long um, and he tends to wear it, well, except in Soul Eater when he's had it cut, um, tends to wear it tied back when he's hot or he's hunting. He's got light grey eyes, quite arresting light grey eyes. Uh, he's quite skinny, um, you know, he's thin. A lot of hunter-gatherers work because they just walk a lot, but he's particularly skinny. Um, he's got straight dark eyebrows. I don't think I've ever mentioned that before, but, you know. Um, he gets less skinny um, in Outcast because he turns 14 and he, he's growing up a little bit. Um, he doesn't smile that much, which isn't surprising given what I put him through. Um, he's a bit like a wolf that way, you know, he smiles when he's got a reason to. He doesn't just smile to make people feel better about themselves. So he can look a bit forbidding. Um, and I think that's about all I'll tell you at the moment. Uh, yes, sorry, I'll come back to you. Yes, right at the back, and then I'll... How are we doing? Yeah, good. What would happen to Torak in the fifth book? Would he go to the islands? Aha, what happens to Torak in the fifth book? Um, well, we've got Outcast is book four. The fifth book, I'm in the middle of writing at the moment. Um, I'm afraid I can't tell you the title yet. Um, it, the working title was Earthshaker, but that's not going to, to be the title. It'll be announced in the next few weeks on the website. Um, it's set in the deep forest. I think those of you who've read some of the earlier books, you know where the deep forest is, and Torak got to the edge of it in, in, in Spirit Walker. So the answer is no, he doesn't go to the islands. Um, he st it starts off in the islands, actually. Um, I better not tell you too much. Something, well, somebody's killed, 
basically. That's telling you quite a lot, I suppose. And um, he has to. He ends up in the in the deep forest, which is a very weird place. I mean, the clan, deep forest clans, they worship trees um, and they're very religious, and so it's a strange and, and rather scary place. Um, I don't think I'd better tell you any more about that, except that yes, we do learn a bit more about the backstory. You know, the, the story of Torak's parents, and um, that's all I'll say at the moment. Now, uh, yes, um, the, the the yes there. Sorry. What kind of books did you read when you were little? What kind of books did I read when I was little? When when I was very small, I I loved the Moomin books. Does anyone here? Has anyone read the Moomin books? Yeah. Great. Well, I love a lot of those. I mean, there is forest around there. Um, there's wolves in Moomin Land midwinter, as I remember. And I, I loved the Moomin books. When I was a bit older, when I was, say, 10, um, I loved reading. There was a series of books about two boys who um, caught animals to put in zoos. Not, not very politically correct, but uh, that's what they did. And they were very exciting. There was Lion Adventure, Amazon Adventure. Loved those books. And then I loved reading legends and myths. There was some retellings of the Norse myths by um, Roger Lancel and Green, and I loved those, and ancient Egypt and Greece. Um, and then when I was a little older, I read The Lord of the Rings, which got me into the sagas and all that. So that was the kind of thing, animals and myths um, I loved. Now, the boy here, in the, no, further, further down, sorry, further towards me, um, there's a boy in a red T-shirt who's put his hand up. Yes? Um. Which book did you like writing the most? Which book did I like writing the most? Um, you know, that's a bit like asking you, a parent of several children, you know, who's your favourite child. Um, it's a difficult one. Usually with me, it's the book I've just finished. Because um, actually when you're in the middle of a book, it's quite hard work because books are messy things, stories are messy. And I'm at the stage with book five where I think, you know, is this ever going to come clear? Um, whereas this one is completely polished and finished and it's got beautiful pictures and, and I can remember writing it and, and so that's my favourite. But when I just finished Wolf Brother, it was Wolf Brother. So with these books, um, I think because it's one, to me it's one story divided into six, um, I don't really have a favourite um, because I'm really enjoying writing them. Yes, next to yes. Uh do you know what the sixth book's called? Yes, I do. Um, the sixth book is going to be called Ghost Hunter. And it takes place up in the high mountains. And in a very real sense, it takes Torak full circle. I mean, he started off with um, his father in, in the south, and he's going to end up in sort of the southern area of the high mountains. Um, it's going to be fairly scary, I think. Um, and it's going to pull together quite a lot of... Um, and finish the story, really. Um, I can't tell you what... what I mean, I know what, how it ends, but I'm not going to tell you that. Uh, but I'm not looking forward to getting there. Um, it doesn't mean it's an unhappy ending. I just don't want to end. Let's have some in the front. Yes, the green. Sorry, I'm making you run. <laughs> um, how did you come up with the characters? How did I come up with the characters? It's very mysterious how that happens because actually that's where the story started. The story started with a boy and a wolf. I didn't even know their names, but that was the story. Um, I think a lot of it comes from what I wanted as a child. I wanted a wolf, therefore I had a boy. I think probably because I was a tomboy and I was into things I wasn't 
you know, I wasn't into dolls and things, and I wanted a wolf. Um, characters come from deep in your imagination, so you don't really know where they come from. Uh, but part of them comes from me, because Ren, for example, is partly me, because she can be pretty sharp and critical, and so can I. Um, Torak likes to be on his own, and so do I. Appearances to the contrary, what am I doing here, talking to you? <laughs> um, but then they start becoming themselves. And it's a very mysterious process, but I knew it with Ren in Spirit Walker, because I'd planned, in my plan, um, that she would be at the beginning and at the end of the book. But, you know, Torak was in trouble. There's no way she was going to stay behind. So I had to change the plan. Um, so that's a muddled answer because it's a muddled thing. Yes? Is, is the way the books are set, is, like, are each of the soul eaters, the way they die, like in the area they die, because in Wolf Brother, it's got a lot of wolves in it and the wolf mage die. And then in Spirit Walker, it's set in the seals and the seal mage dies. Does, is, that, is it a bit like that in all the books? No, it isn't. Um, without wanting to give too much away, um, there isn't really a pattern to what happens to the soul eaters. Um, because, and again, I don't want to spoil the story for people who haven't read all of the books, but you'll write about you know, the first book and the second book, um, but in the third book, it's a bit different um, because you know, somebody gives up their life, effectively. They don't, they're not killed. Um, the fourth book is a little different again. Um, so, no, there isn't... I mean, yes, Torak has to. Ultimately, the whole story is about Torak dealing with seven soul eaters, but it's not going to be quite as simple as that. But, you know, well done for pointing out, you know, you've, you've noticed the pattern. Um, yes? When, what specifically, what kind of tattoos are for Wolf Clan or the clans? What kind of tattoos are the Wolf Clan's tattoos? What do they look like? Ah, the Wolf, wolf um, Torax Clan tattoos, um, the Wolf Clan's tattoos are sort of little dotted, quite fine dotted lines, um, which, almost like a cat's whiskers, they sort of slightly widen. So they're slightly, two dotted lines, which sort of start off here and then get slightly wider here. Um, Torax, there's a, a break um, because of a scar on one side of his cheek, on one cheek, and that's very important in Outcast. Um, don't want to give too much away, but there's a, there's a whole thing to do with that in Outcast. Um, yes, now the stripy, I think you were wearing a cardigan earlier, but. Um, why yes. did you kind of change the pattern of the titles for Outcast? Why did I change the pattern of the titles for Outcast? You know, it's funny, some people have. A bookseller asked me that. He said, oh, no, you completely changed the pattern. To me, it isn't, because a lot of you will have picked up. Each, in each book, it's describing Torak, really. Um, so actually, in that sense, it hasn't changed the pattern. You've had Wolf Brother, Spirit Walker, Soul Eater, Outcast. The rhythm is different, you're right. But actually, I like that, because to me, it's like a full stop. It's a punctuation mark, because when you're cast out of the clans, it is a full stop. Um, so that to me seemed, yeah, I like that. It's got a good rhythm if you say it. But, yeah. So, now, who hasn't had one? Yes. Um, on the second row from the back, right at the end, I'm trying to cover you all, but that's what you find. What do they do with the seal's lungs? The seal's lungs. Good one. Um, lungs are not particularly nutritious, um, and they're rather chewy. So those sorts of bits would be thrown to the husky dogs, because even now, in these small settlements in Greenland, um, Inuit people tend to have a team of huskies for the winter. Um, so 
things like that that really don't taste too good would go to the huskies unless in the old days when it was there was really famine and if they you know if they couldn't catch any seals and they'd only caught one then the people would eat them they'd shove everything in the pot um, or just chew them raw yeah um at the back yes those two again we can have you met any other famous authors have i met any other fa i have well, there's one sitting right over there, actually. There's Cliff McNish over there. Um, come on, stand up, Cliff. <laughs> well, he's over there. Yes, so I have met Cliff. Um, I have met Anthony Horowitz. I have sat at the same dinner table as Jackie Wilson, but I haven't plucked up the courage to say anything to her. Um, I haven't met J.K. Rowling. Um, oh, there are others. I mean, you meet them at these things, um, but I, I don't sort of hang out with them too much because it's a bit like talking to other authors um, apologies Cliff but it's a bit like coming out of an exam and talking to other people about which questions you answered and everybody else sounds as though they've done better than you have um, so you know if, if you're at a sticky point in your book um, then it can be a bit worrying if you hear someone saying oh I wrote that book in three weeks and you're thinking god it takes me you know eight months um, so yeah Right, in the front. Sorry, you can probably shout and I'll repeat it. Yeah. <laughs> how did you come up with the idea for the Tokoroth? Ah, the Tokoroth. How did I come up with the idea for the Tokoroth? Tokoroth, for anyone who doesn't know, they're really scary creatures. They actually were once children, but they've had a demon implanted in them. They're based on something in reality. Um, I was born in a country called Nyasaland, which is now Malawi in Central Africa. Um, and in that part of the world, they used to make Tokoroth or they used to call them Tokolosh, but I just slightly changed the name. And what happened was a witch doctor, um, would, would, a bad witch doctor, and some of them are good, uh, would steal a child, and then when, he was, when the child was small, would grow them, bring them up uh, to be bad. Um, I won't tell you all the things they did to them, because they're pretty awful, and this doesn't happen anymore. Um, but they would make the child grow up as their servant, a bad servant, um, to steal and scare people and maybe kill. So it was pretty, pretty heavy duty and very scary. Um, and that struck me as very scary because a small child who is evil, you know, how do you deal with that? Um, and then to, I thought that probably for Stone Age people, they would think that that's because a demon had gone into the child. So that was based on reality, which is quite a lot of these the beliefs in the stories are. So good question. Um, yes, I think it's Adam over there. Yes, with the glasses. Um, after you finish the Chronicles of Ancient Darkness, are you going to do any more books like set in that world at that time? Yeah, that's, that's the big question, actually. Um, as I said, I'm really not looking forward to finishing because uh, you know, they're my friends. Torek, Ren, Wolf, Sinkedin, you know, they're, they're with me all the time. Um, their story ends then, and, and that's when the cycle ends. Um, I don't know is the answer, I'm afraid. I, I'm debating it all the time. I'd love to, in a way, stay in the Stone Age. At the moment, I can't imagine writing a story without those characters. Um, so all I can say is, I'm going to just have to see, you know. Um, you need a bit of time after you finish a series like that to, to, to think. Dunno. Yes. How did you think of the names for the clans? How did I think of the names for the clans? Again, that's interesting because that goes to the beliefs. Um, many hunter-gatherers believe that, uh, across the world, believe that they were descended from certain animals. 
So in, in um, Aborigines in Australia, we'll believe that some of them were descended from wombats, so they'd be the wombat clan. Um, and the, the clan names I got, I got particularly from the um, American Indians um, of a certain part of North America, the Pacific Northwest. So you have the, the wolf clan, the raven clan, um, and then I, I made some up myself. But it's, it's a very strong belief because they all believe that they were brothers and sisters to the animals and literally descended from them. Um, so that's where I got that idea from. Mm. Now, yes, how are we doing? Yeah, uh, two more questions, I think, and then we... Uh, what were some of the names that you were going to call the wolf? Oh, what were some of the names I was going to call wolf? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, well, I can remember one. Um, I think it was Nari. It was a cute name, you know, because he's a cute little wolf cub. Oh, it was pathetic. I think I've still got them somewhere, but I've blotted them out. Last question. Yes. Why, um, how big do wolves usually get, like Torex? How big is he? Oh, Torex, he's the biggest wolf on the reserve now. They get, um, Torex about this high on me, um, but, you know, they can jump up. I mean, he's not supposed to, but he can, I let him sort of greet me, and, and he sort of puts his paws, front paws on my shoulders, and he's a very strong wolf, because the funny thing with wolves is they're very narrow. They're much narrower than Alsatians, and so you think, well, they're not going to be strong but they're much stronger. Um, so he's incredibly strong, and he is now the biggest wolf um, on the, in the trust. He's, he's terrific. Um, you're all asking such amazing questions. I could go on, but I'm getting signals that we should stop. If any of you have, are still burning with questions, you, know, you can ask me when I'm signing your book. Um, and I think now Jill's just going mm. to sort of close up. But thank you so much for, A, listening to me, and B, asking such great questions. Thank you. That was so interesting to hear all the background and just fabulous. Um, Michelle's going to be signing books. Can we be really picky this year and say maximum of two books? Because I think it's when people bring six books along, then the people at the back of the queue are waiting for ages. I know some people will be disappointed, but if we could say maximum of two, that would be fantastic. And then Michelle will actually have time to maybe speak to you all and so on. And if you could just wait there for us to get out so we're not crushed in the rush that would be lovely thank you very much thanks michelle <laughs>